seat. My name is Andy, and glad that you joined us for worship today. Quick show of hands. How many of you would like to be part of the kingdom of heaven? Right, so last week I, I asked how many of you had committed murder in the last week, and I hope that nobody raised their hand. This week, how many of you want to be part of the kingdom of heaven? I hope that everybody wants to raise their hand. Uh, we're in Matthew chapter 5, um, going through the Sermon on the Mount, and all of us want to be part of the kingdom of heaven. So that's why when Jesus said in Matthew five twenty, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus said that, we all want to enter the kingdom of heaven, but that's a pretty disturbing statement. The scribes and the Pharisees were legendary for their rule keeping. They were the greatest rule keepers that have ever lived in human history. And Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds the greatest law followers and rule keepers that have ever lived in human history, you can never enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh my goodness. All of us want to enter the kingdom of heaven. So what, <laughs> what do we do? What kind of righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees? And how can I have it? That's really the question. We started uh, part one last week. We're continuing that this week. It's the same question. What kind of righteousness is greater than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? And how can we have that kind of righteousness today? Because all of us, by a show of hands, said that we want to be part of the kingdom of heaven. So uh, last week, Jesus made this statement. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20 is the thesis statement of the Sermon on the Mount. Includes that verse about having a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. He made that statement, and then he gives six examples of what that kind of righteousness looks like in real life. What kind of righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees? Well, he gives us six examples. We looked at three of them last week. We're going to look at three of them this week. Same question, same concept, uh, but I want to talk about two things as we walk through this passage. I want to talk about quality over quantity. And I want to talk about wholeness over performance. Quality over quantity and wholeness over performance. So what is the righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees? First of all, kingdom righteousness, as Jesus is teaching it in the Sermon on the Mount, kingdom righteousness is a righteousness of quality over quantity. It is a righteousness of heart transformation over behavior management. The righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees was an external righteousness of behavior management, which they were really good at. But the kingdom righteousness that Jesus is teaching about in the Sermon on the Mount, the righteousness that is greater or exceeds theirs is an internal heart change, heart transformation. It's about quality over quantity. And so kind of to illustrate this idea of quality over quantity, um, I'll tell you this little story. I was serving as associate pastor at a church. I was a worship leader, associate pastor. And one of our deacons, his name is Greg, and he was responsible for the welcome team. That was his uh, area of leadership and service. And so uh, Greg would show up to church early, early, early every Sunday, and he would make the coffee that we serve so that Sunday morning would be a nice, hospitable place for people to come. And one time I, I asked him, I said, Greg, what kind of coffee are we serving on Sunday mornings? Because it's not very good. 
And so he took me back to this storage room, this big closet, and he opened the door, and there were hundreds of cans about this big of Folgers coffee. And some of it, not kidding you, was more than 10 years old. Apparently, at some point in time, one of the fiscally responsible deacons had seen Folgers coffee on sale for half off, and he bought two pallets of it, had it delivered to the church and stored in there. And Greg said, this is what we're serving. And I said, okay, as the uh, pastor who oversees worship, I hereby authorize you to buy fresher coffee because it's about quality over quantity. So Greg went out and bought new Folgers, and it didn't taste really any better. (laughs) But it's about quality. I don't care how much quantity of coffee we have. We have to have good coffee. Uh, I was talking with Greg a couple of years ago, and I said, by the way, I'm just curious, whatever happened to all that old Folgers coffee? And he said, oh, I mixed it half and half till it was gone. (laughs) So Greg was fiscally conservative as well. Good stewardship there. Quality over quantity. That's the kind of righteousness Jesus is preaching. Quality, heart transformation, uh, not just behavior management. So last week he gave three examples, murder, adultery, and divorce. This week he gives three more examples. By the way, I just want to say a quick word about divorce uh, from last week. That, that's a really hard teaching of Jesus for us today. I understand that sometimes divorce is unavoidable. Sometimes it's even necessary. But it was never really part of God's design for human flourishing. Sometimes it's unavoidable. Sometimes it's necessary because we live in a fallen, sinful world with hard-hearted people. And so sometimes we have to do it, but it's not part of the design. If you've been through a divorce, God has grace and mercy and forgiveness uh, for you at the cross of Jesus. I just wanted to point that out from last week. Let's look at the next three illustrations that Jesus gives of this righteousness that is about heart transformation over behavior management, quality over quantity. The first example that he gives is taking oaths. That comes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Jesus said, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. What is Jesus talking about in this uh, teaching? Well, have you ever known somebody that said something that was technically true, but really wasn't true? Like, technically, I didn't tell a lie, but I didn't really tell the truth either. That's kind of what he's getting at. Uh, When I was a kid, probably seventh grade or so, um, my dad told me to go take a shower. He said, you're stinky, go take a shower. And so I went and took a shower, and about a minute and a half later, I came out. And my dad said, did you take a shower? Yes, I took a shower, just like you told me to. And he said, did, did you wash your hair? Because your hair looks so greasy, it's about to slide off your head. Maybe that's what happened. <laughs> so he said, take me back in and show me what you did. And I showed him, and I had not used any soap. Uh, and he said, you lied to me. I asked you if you took a shower, and you told me yes, but you really didn't. And I said, no, you asked if I took a shower. You didn't ask if I used soap, right? Technically, I said, now, by the way, I do use soap now. Uh, I've learned, 
I've learned that. But technically what I said was true, but it really wasn't true, right? I was, it was parsing words, and, and it depends on what the meaning of is, is, or, or whatever. Like, this is, this is what Jesus is getting at. In that time period, people would make a promise and they would, the, the strength of their promise depended on what they swore the oath by. If it's a really strong promise, I'm going to swear by God himself as my witness. If it's not as strong of a promise, I might swear by the oak tree in my yard as my witness. And, and if I, you know, that oak tree is not as important as God, so if I break that promise, it's probably not a big deal. And Jesus says, that's silly. That's ridiculous. You shouldn't need to call God as your witness to make a promise binding. God already hears every word you speak. He already knows every thought you think. He already sees everything you do. He's already a witness on everything, every part of our lives. So simply mean what you say, say what you mean, and be who you are. You're a child of God. Be that. Live that way. Uh, It's, it's, he's... (laughs) Be who you are, a child of God. Say what you mean. Mean what you say. He's teaching that we should live lives that are are full of such integrity and character that we don't need to take some fancy oath to make people believe that we're going to keep our word. If my life is a living demonstration of promises that are kept, I don't need to say, oh, I swear by God as my witness in order for somebody to believe me. That's what he's talking about. It's a deeper righteousness, a greater righteousness. It's a righteousness of integrity. Mean what you say, say what you mean, and be who you are. You are a child of God, so live like it. Um, The next example that Jesus gives is seeking justice. In verse 38, he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. What is he talking about here? Uh, We read this, and this is another hard saying for us as Americans, because we really value our right to concealed carry and our right to self-defense. And is, is Jesus saying that we can't defend ourselves? No, that's not what he's talking about. Let me clear up a couple of misunderstandings or misinterpretations of this thing. First of all, Jesus is not here contradicting the Old Testament. The law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is an Old Testament law. It's in Exodus chapter 21, Leviticus chapter 24, and Deuteronomy chapter 19. And that law was put into place by God to establish justice. It was put into place to stop vengeance, which often goes too far. You killed my goat, so now I'm going to kill three of your goats. No, that's not right. It was to establish justice, let the punishment fit the crime, right? And it was also put in place to stop vigilantes. It was put in place to say, here, here, who decides eye for eye or tooth for tooth? It's the judge who decides that. Not one person and another person, well, you insulted me, now I'm going to insult you back. You cheated on me, now I'm going to cheat on you back. No, that Jesus is saying, that's not the point. We are not the arbiters of justice. The justice system is. God has established a government who's responsible for carrying out justice, and those people will be held accountable by God for the justice that they give, whether it's good or bad. And so that that law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth was put in place by God to stop vigilantes and to establish justice. 
And Jesus is not overturning the Old Testament. He's not saying, in the Old Testament, God said, do this, but I'm saying to do something different. He's actually fulfilling it. He's showing it what it means. He's not contradicting the Old Testament. He's also not saying that you can't defend yourself or your family. In all the situations that, uh, illustrations that Jesus gives of that uh, not retaliating um, principle, none of them are illegal activities. When When he says, if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, he's not talking about somebody who has jumped out of the bushes and is now assaulting you to leave you bloody and bruised and and half dead on the ground. That's not what he's describing. The slap on the right cheek was when I would take the back of my hand and I would smack you on the right cheek like this. It was an insult to your honor. That's what it was. It wasn't even a painful slap. It was just, I am going to publicly shame you by slapping you on the right cheek now. So what Jesus is saying is, when somebody insults you, don't escalate the situation by responding with an insult or a punch. Right? They're not doing something illegal. They're just insulting your honor. Don't feel the need to challenge them to a duel in order to defend your honor. When he says, somebody took your tunic, He's not talking about robbers coming to steal your tunic from you. He said they took you to court and sued you, and they took your tunic. Give them your cloak, right? And going one mile with somebody, what he's referring to there is they lived in a Roman-occupied nation. And the Roman soldiers had legal authority to conscript labor from the Jewish people. And and so none of the situations here that Jesus is describing are illegal situations doesn't necessarily make them right as we learned last week just because something is legal doesn't mean it's right but he's not talking about if somebody breaks and enters into your house in the middle of the night you're not allowed to defend yourself or your family no you have to give them your wallet you have to give them your watch you have to give them the the pin code to your credit card you have to give them the key to your lockbox. you have to give them uh, permission to take all the money out of your bank account give them all your clothes he's not saying that He's not saying that if you see somebody hurting a child, you can't step in and defend that child. That's not what he's talking about. What is he saying in this teaching? Well, it's about a transformation of heart over behavior management, and what he's saying is two wrongs don't make a right. That's what he's teaching. When somebody insults you, don't insult them back. If somebody mistreats you, don't carry it out upon yourself to mistreat them back. If somebody takes advantage of you, don't set out on a personal vendetta of revenge because two wrongs don't make a right. One commentary I read on this passage this week said, Jesus is teaching here, do not be a vengeful vigilante, a self-justified distributor of justice. There is a righteousness greater and more beautiful than self-justice, and that is letting God be the judge and the righteousness maker. God has established a system of justice And we have to trust that God will balance the scales in the end. God doesn't need my help. He's perfectly capable on his own, right? So that's what he's talking about. If you really want to be an agent of God's justice in the world, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We want to bring God's righteousness into the world. What we need to do is stop living for our own justice. Stop looking out for our own interest and instead do what Jesus said in verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Do you ever think it's odd that Jesus is talking about not retaliating against evil and then all of a sudden he throws in this statement about giving to the poor? 
That doesn't even seem to fit with the rest of what he's talking about, unless what he's talking about is how we can enact God's justice in the world. Not going out and waging war against everybody that offends us, but instead living generously toward those who are in need. Giving freely to those who are disadvantaged. Bringing justice to those who don't have justice. This is exactly what Jesus did for us. The Apostle Peter was there when Jesus delivered this Sermon on the Mount. And he remembered that when later when he wrote the letter of 1 Peter. In chapter 2, he said, For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. He never sinned nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. Jesus did not retaliate. He did not return insult for insult. He did not threaten revenge. He left his case in the hands of God. He was not out seeking to live for his own honor and his own justice. Instead, he chose to obey God and he chose to take our sins onto himself and destroy them on the cross so that he could bring justice to us who didn't have it. He gave his life so that we could live. What does that look like in today's world? No doubt many of you have followed the news about uh, Roe v. Wade possibly being overturned by the Supreme Court. And I want to say, Christians are unapologetically pro-life. The Bible is unapologetically, very clearly, unashamedly pro-life. So uh, we're, I was excited when I saw that in the news. Uh, we believe from womb to tomb, life is sacred. Human beings are made in the image of God. From the moment of conception to the moment of our last breath, we protect and support and defend the right to live. But if we are going to advocate for pro-life legislation, which is a good thing to do, and I think we should advocate for it, we also must be willing to step in and help women who are at risk and have need. We have to be willing to put our money where our mouth is. It's a whole lot easier to post something on Instagram than it is to go volunteer at the CareNet Pregnancy Center. It's a whole lot easier to slap a bumper sticker on my car than it is to write out a check and stick it in a baby bottle so that it gets to the CareNet Pregnancy Center. We have to be willing not just to advocate for life, uh, pro-life legislation. We also have to be willing to step in and help the women who are in need and who are at risk and who feel like they don't have very many other options. We have to provide them with other viable options so that they feel like they have a choice not to abort their baby. That's what that looks like. Bring justice to those who don't have it. Give and live generously toward those who are in need. That's how we can be agents of God's justice in the world. The third example that Jesus gives uh, is the, the focal point of his teaching on ethics and morality. And that starts with verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, I want to pause there for a minute. This command is a little bit different than the five previous examples that Jesus gave. The three from last week and the two we've looked at this week. All five of those have clear references to the Old Testament. 
clear, stated here in the law, stated in Leviticus or Deuteronomy or Exodus. It's clearly stated. This one is a little different. Leviticus chapter 19 does say to love your neighbor, but nowhere in the Old Testament does God ever command to hate your enemy. That's not a command that God gave his people. So what is Jesus doing? He's not, he's not overturning an Old Testament law. He is correcting a misinterpretation of an Old Testament law so that he can reveal the true intent of the Old Testament law. See, God said to love your enemies. The religious leaders assumed if I'm uh, loving my neighbor, then I'm hating my enemy. And Jesus said, no, that's not how we live. That's the way the world lives. This is the law of the world that we see in the news every single day, even today. Love those who are like you and hate those who are different. Love those who agree with you and hate those who disagree with you. Build your tribe and conquer or destroy the rest. How many video games have that as their uh, agenda? Build your tribe and conquer or destroy the rest. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. And Jesus says, no, that's not how we're going to live. With a single thrust, he overturns the entire way of the world. And he says in verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why would you do that? Verse 45, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Now he's not saying, if you do this, you'll earn the right to be God's children. What he's saying is, when you live this way, you'll bear a family resemblance to your heavenly father. See, this is how God acts. He makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? If we live just like the world lives and love those who agree with us and hate those who disagree with us, how are we any different? That's not how we live. I'm calling, you, calling on you to love not only your neighbors, but also your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you. Because when you live like that, you are a reflection of your heavenly father. The apostle Paul picked up on that in Romans chapter five. He says, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. Newsflash, we're not upright or especially good. (laughs) That's why he says in verse eight, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. He didn't wait till we cleaned up our lives. He didn't wait till we straightened ourselves out. He came and died for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. While we were still his enemies, Christ came and gave his life on the cross so that we could be made friends of God. That's how God loved us, and that's how Jesus calls us to love others, even our enemies. See, kingdom righteousness is about quality over quantity. It is about heart transformation, not just behavior 
management. We're going to push pause there for a minute, and we're going to respond with some worship and singing, uh, and include the kids in that too. Okay, we are going to sing Start a Fire, which is one we've done before, but if you don't remember the motions to it, it's start a fire like we're lighting a match in my soul, fan the flames and make it grow because there's no doubt or denying. Let it burn so brightly so everyone around can see that it's you, that it's you that we need. Start a fire in me. And remember, Kids, we don't mean that we want God to start a fire inside of us, not a real fire, but it means that we want to be so excited about who Christ is that we want to tell other people. We want everyone to know who he is. It's a fire of excitement, okay? You guys ready? (laughs) Oh, I do want them to stand up. (laughs) Oh, I want everyone to stand up.
Y'all can have a seat. Wrap up the second little part here. The second part's shorter than the first part, so. (laughs) What kind of righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees? And how can we have it today? The first answer is kingdom righteousness is is about quality over quantity. The second part is that kingdom righteousness is about wholeness over performance. It's about being completely devoted to Christ more than neurotically following the rules, right? So look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, the last verse in our passage for the morning. Jesus concludes his ethical teaching by saying this, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, when you hear the word perfect, what do you think of? For many of us, we think of something related to performance, like a test at school. I got a perfect score on the test. What does that mean? I I got 100% of all the questions right. Like an evaluation at work, I got a perfect evaluation. What does that mean? I did 100% of my job responsibilities accomplished, right? We tend to think of the word perfect in terms of performance. So if that was true, then what Jesus would be saying is, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to get 100% moral perfection, 100% perfect, follow every rule, every law, all 248 commands, all 365 prohibitions perfectly without any mistake, and only then can you enter the kingdom of heaven. And since none of us can do that, it's clearly impossible for any of us to be in heaven. But that's not really what he's getting at in this teaching The word perfect in Matthew 5.48 is the Greek word teleos. Teleos. And that word teleos has a much broader meaning than the English word perfect. The English word perfect is fairly narrow. The Greek word teleos is a very broad word. And so uh, what he's talking about is this. The word teleos means complete or mature or fully developed Like when you have a CD or a bond that has matured and reached its full value. Or when a puppy is fully developed into a full-grown dog. Or if a puzzle is completed by putting in the last piece. Those are all examples of the meaning of the word teleos. So when Jesus says, be teleos, or perfect, as your heavenly Father is teleos, what he means is not 100% performance. What he means is a wholeness or a completeness of the heart, a heart that is fully developed, a heart that is purely and wholeheartedly and singularly devoted to Christ. It's what Jesus taught in other places when he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. With everything that you are, love God. That's teleos. That's the righteousness that is greater and exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, which sought perfect performance. And Jesus says, no, be complete and whole in your devotion to God. Holiness means wholeness in this context. Dr. Jonathan Pennington, New Testament scholar, uh, says this about that verse. To say that disciples must be teleos as God is teleos is to say that they must be whole or virtuous, singular in who they are, not one person on the outside and a different person on the inside. Might augment that a little bit. Not one person on Sunday morning and a different person on Monday morning. 
not I act like a Christian on Wednesday night at youth group, but not on Thursday morning at school, right? That's not what we're, to be teleos, as God is teleos, is to be whole and virtuous and singular in who you are. The call to teleosity throughout the Sermon on the Mount is the same call to holiness that we see throughout the Bible. Not moral perfection, but having wholehearted orientation toward God. It's what God told his people in Hosea 6, 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I would rather have your love than your rote obedience to all the rules. I would rather have your heart and a relationship with you than your checklist of do's and don'ts that you have perfectly followed. God says, I want your heart. I want your whole heart completely. That's what it means to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect in this context. See, the world that we live in today preaches a different gospel. The world says the only one who really matters is yourself. So do whatever you have to do to get ahead. Don't make any commitment that might cost you or might require you to sacrifice anything that you want. Avoid those kinds of commitments at all costs. Instead, do whatever you want to do. Take whatever you need to take in order to get whatever you want to have. According to the world, marriage is relatively meaningless. When you fall out of love, you owe it to yourself to walk away from that marriage and find someone else who makes you happy. The world says the strong dominate the weak, so don't show any mercy or you'll get eaten. Keep your word when it benefits you. Walk it back on social media when it doesn't benefit you. Take credit when things go right. Point fingers when things go wrong. Jump on the bandwagon of social justice if it gets you more followers and likes. And be quick to get revenge on anyone who crosses you or makes you look bad in front of others. The world says you have to justify your own existence. If you want to be accepted, prove that you're somebody worth being accepted. If you want to be significant, prove that your life has value. If you want to be loved, prove that you're somebody worth loving. And if you can't perform, we won't accept you. That's the way the world lives. But Jesus says, I have a better way. You don't have to wait until you die to enter the kingdom of heaven. You don't have to wait until Christ returns to enter the kingdom of heaven. We can enter the kingdom of heaven by living a kingdom life now. And Jesus says, this is a better way of life. Everyone who would follow Christ, he invites to a life of quality over quantity, a life of wholeness over performance, a life of commitment and true friendship. I'm not your friend because I get something out of you. I'm your friend because I love you and I'm here for you. I'm not married to you because you make me happy. I'm married to you because I am giving myself for your highest good and I'm committed until death do us part. Jesus invites all who would follow him to a life of true justice and compassion for those who are oppressed and at risk. A life of mercy and forgiveness because people matter more than my offended pride. He invites us to a life of integrity and honor, a life of joy and freedom, a life of security and peace in which we don't have to justify our own existence because we've already been accepted and loved by God. In short, Jesus offers us an everlasting kingdom life of love with our Heavenly Father.
And my question is, aren't you tired of grinding out life the world's way? Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who of, of you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. You don't have to prove that you're someone worth loving because God already loves you. Come and be free and receive rest. That's his invitation to live the kingdom life now. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank